Hello friends and welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from designers, builders, and artisans. History informs the future, and so do our guests. I'm your host, Peter Miller. What defines classical interiors? Interior designers play a very important role in the restoration, renovation, and new period home design process, often leading the team of allied professionals. How do they approach their work, delight their clients, and source the craftspeople who contribute to the success of their projects? How do they research classical interiors? How do they define it? We're speaking today with Barbara Eberlein of Eberlein Design Consultants, an interior design firm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with work spanning the globe. Good morning, Barbara. Morning, Pete. Thanks so much for inviting me. I want to begin with a question I've had for a long time, sort of flummoxes me. What defines classical interiors? What a good question. If anyone had the perfect, succinct answer to this, I'd love to hear it. But I can tell you from my point of view what it is. And it's interesting that we think of classical architecture very much as a language. It's true in landscape design, and it's also true in interior design. But it's not quite so easy to put your finger on exactly what it is and what it isn't. But there are principles and goals that I find that in classical interior design shares with classical architecture. And that I would say, if I had to focus on a particular definition, is that there are elements like balance and proportion and rhythm and scale and logic. I mean, go on and on with the list of things that you want to consider in crafting a beautiful space. But the kinds of sequencing, creating vistas and the logic and layering and punctuation and rhythm that architects think about in creating a building is exactly what designers think about in the layering and development and orchestration of a space. Can you achieve the layering and punctuation with interiors only, or, or do you need architectural detail? Well, that's another good question. You know, I was thinking about this when we were chatting earlier. Um, I don't know why you would want to do a classical interior and forfeit the opportunity to tap into the architectural richness that can be added through ornament and detail. But let's just say you had a client who was moving every six months or every year. And they said, I love my environments. My home is very important to me, but I'm going to be moving again. So I don't want to spend my entire investment on moldings and columns and other things, what would you do? And I think you can create the same kind of visual punctuation and focus by using other kinds of elements. For example, if I did scenic wallpaper on a multi-panel screen and I hung it as the focal point of a room, even if the room had no architectural detail, that element itself could yield the same kind of reference and richness that a three-dimensional architectural element could. Or if we had a, a large opening and there was no punctuation, no beautiful door casing or columns, you could use huge topiaries on either side or something to create the kind of focus and human scale and connection and visual richness that architecture gives you. 
I would be the first one to go for the architecture, by the way, um, at any point. But but if let's say you were doing a mural, what what would you use as inspiration for that mural? Mm, it depends on whether or not I wanted to connect to the environment outside. Like there's a reference to what you're seeing, one of my favorite murals ever that we designed for um, a roof deck was the landscape, the cityscape that you would have seen had they never built skyscrapers in front of your view. <laughs> so that was a really interesting way to get both, you know, to get both elements of it, you know, what you what you have and what you want. You know, those are two different things. Turning 11 into 11. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's been said that the younger generation of homeowners are not as interested in classicism as they are in modernism. Do you, do you see that? I think one of the great things that has happened as a result of a social media boom is that people get more information. The negative part is they don't get as much education. And there's a big difference between understand, looking at a lot and understanding what you're looking at. So I think there, the pendulum definitely is swinging. If you look at um, practically every design magazine now, everybody's got wallpaper back and ceilings are in. And, and I used to like to say that we're so out, we're in, because everybody else is trying to catch up to us. The, the real truth is that we never abandoned certain principles that we learned before. But I think the days of everyone having exactly the same taupe sofa are coming to an end. And whether or not you go back to exactly what was being done years ago, I think, I think not. I think that the design process uh, is an additive one. You get additional layers, you get more information, you get more references and more points of connection I spent a lot of time on fashion as a child, and my father once told me that uh, fashion design was cyclical. And I thought, how does he know that? That's unbelievable. He's a genius. And then he explained that things come back into um, our popular culture and come back into fashion, but never quite the same the next time, because you have, you have, more, you have more to learn from. It's like that proverbial walking around up and up and up a mountain and thinking that you're always coming back to the same point. Well, you're not coming up back to the same point because you're higher and you can see farther and it's a different, it's a different perspective, but yeah, ideas and silhouettes and, and concepts are revisited, but, but always with a fresh perspective. And I think that's what's happening now. I remember, um, Trad is rad. I remember an interview I had <laughs> with Gil, with Gil Schaefer, who said, you know, all the magazine editors want to know what's new, what's hot, what's trendy, but I'm a classicist and I just kind of wear, you know, narrow ties, no matter what the, what, what the fashion. Um, what kind of research do you do before beginning an interior design project? Oh, I think it depends a lot on the, the nature of the project and the nature of the client. For example, if um, we, I'm thinking of this because we just finished uh, an historic building that houses one of the oldest, most um, richest medical libraries. And from everything from illuminated manuscripts to present day materials. And so what 
research is required for that is very different than I would do for a vacation house. In the case of the historic library, I need to know about climate control and humidity and the effects of light and uh, what conservation uh, capabilities they have on staff. How are we going to get things transferred out? How do you safely store documents like that? And how do you present them so that the general public is engaged and, and feels like this is an incredibly valuable uh, community resource? On the other hand, if I were designing someone's vacation home, I would be looking at what they live with presently, what they feel is missing in their in their life visually, aesthetically, or in terms of what they can do, and trying to figure out the elements that work in that kind of environment. And obviously, if we're building a beach house in the Caribbean, it's going to be different than a mountain house in Montana. But trying to get at what's the essential ingredient, you have to look at design as a problem solver. You're an artist, but you're a problem solver at the same time, and you've got to be able to put those two things together. Does that create a theme, an overall theme for each project you do? Probably less a theme than a goal, because most interiors are going to want to have a point of view, or the ones that we like to craft have a point of view. They're saying something. They're saying something to you. They're saying something about the person who lives there. Um, they're guiding you through their own multi-layered personality. So I think that 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 and the client's interests being expressed are the most important things. It's, it's funny to see how people take what they believe to be is a very identifiable theme. Like we just had a client who bought uh, a very classically oriented um, fellow who just bought a mid-century modern Richard Neuter house that only had one owner. He bought it and he said, I love this house. I love mid-century architecture. I hate mid-century modern furniture. Don't show me any of that. I want Art Deco. And of course, I gulped and thought, Woohoo! how are we going to connect those dots? Um, but if you take a breath and you think about it and you think about the lines and the points of connection and the revelations that one historical period gives you for another or the interaction of certain materials, that's where you start to create real richness and uniqueness in interiors that you would never have thought of before. And that speaks to the notion that uh, what goes around comes around, but it's different. I think of uh, Art Deco as sort of a precursor to mid-century modern. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, is, it is very much so. And, and when you think, I mean, that, that in particular is a very, very interesting point in the history of the planet, as well as in the history of design, because you're coming out of something, you know, the huge industrial age, and then the arts and crafts movement looking for connection to handmade craftsmanship, the personal expression that comes with um, taking something on yourself and making something with your own hands, as opposed to the mass um, the bass marketing, and then how early French Art Deco evolved into a more mechanized industrial version in New York's version of Art Deco, and then how that slid into mid-century. It's, it's the most fascinating continuum that did about three backflips <laughs> within the space of 100 years. Empire State Building and, and so much mm -hmm. of the things that were built in... Um the depression WPA projects, for example, oh, they're beautiful. Uh, 
the Hoover Dam um, comes to mind. I want to go back to your medical research library um, and the research. By the way, that project won a Trumbauer Award, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I handed you that trophy and shook your hand for that. <laughs> That's right. Um, but from medical library uh, interior restoration to a house in Montana. Um, you have a wide ranging portfolio of, of work. Um, does that make it more fun or more difficult or both? Both. And that they're, they're very much tied. Uh, I can't imagine any creative person being happy doing the same thing over and over and over. And I realize people do it and I've never been able to figure that out. I, I always think about what it was like as a as a an eight year old walking onto a stage and you're in a ballet performance and every single time I thought I don't remember the first step oh my god panic and then of course you walk onto the stage and the music starts and you remember everything I like that same feeling in design projects walking in and thinking uh oh uh oh do I know what I'm doing I don't know and feeling that, you know your heart start to race a little bit and you can't wait to research um, what the history of this building was or the use or the people who built it or the architect who originally conceived it. And it's that kind of, um, oh, I don't know, just sort of hungry quest for knowledge that I think sparks a lot of designers' imaginations and produces the best work. And we love the range of commercial, institutional, residential, um, modern, contemporary, and the historic. You mentioned the uh, client who uh, bought a Nutra mid-century modern house and wanted to decorate it in Art Deco. I'm also noting a project you did, I think in Bryn Mawr, Philadelphia, where you took a Georgian house and the interiors were French Art Deco. Yes. Well, that was sparked by an incredible collection. Um, and, you know, they lived in the house before and had an Americana collection, a notable Americana collection, and big changes in their life. And they decided to sell everything in that collection and start over again and went into Art Deco. So a lot of what we were doing in that house was um, calming the specific references to Georgian down, but keeping the scale and keeping the richness. Did that send you on a journey to find French Art Deco collections for, for them or had they? <laughs> Luckily, I was working with a renowned collector who was very clear about my role and his role. He said, look, I'm the collector. I find the things. You create the space that makes them the most beautiful. You weren't insulted. No. Oh, not at all. Because, you know, all of this whole process is one of collaboration. And you might be working with uh, an architect who's brand new to the field, and you're going to have a different role vis-a-vis them than you would if you were working with a grandmaster. But you're going to learn something from that collaboration, no matter which way it's going. And that's why we love to work with lighting designers and landscape designers, because all of those people have such fine-tuned um, expertise that if you just keep your head um, on straight and your ears open, you're going to learn so much that's going to be applicable for years. 
One thing I notice about your work is that all of your clients have one thing in common, good taste. They know to approve <laughs> things that look great. Um, what other things do your clients have in common? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Well, first of all, you know, good taste is a strange, uh, strange phenomenon. There, it's like it's like color. There's no bad color. There's just bad combinations. And our goal is to try to take whatever whatever comfort level they're dealing with in aesthetics and build it and build it and broaden it and then help them focus too. That's that's important as well. But I would say that if there are aspects of clients that I'm looking for, it would be ones that don't want the answer given to them. They don't want to be dictated to. They don't want to see another room that looks just like theirs. They're absolutely individual. They're extremely expressive. Um, they can be as opinionated as they want, but open and energetic and enthusiastic about growth. That sounds like the perfect collaboration. You orchestrate the creative efforts of so many craftspeople in your work. Um, do you want to talk about how and who you work with? You know, there's, there's nothing that we do that is done in a vacuum. Every single element of what we create and what we build is done with someone else. My mother used to ask me, well, you don't really make the curtains, so why did you say you designed them? I said, well, <laughs> you know, there are different parts of this. Um, no, fact, Mom, I'm not, I'm not sitting at the sewing machine, Mom. Yeah, but I probably <laughs> am, is the real truth. Um, but, it, you know, what you can learn from people who are installing micro-mosaic floors in marble to contemporary glass tile, or what you would see working with um, someone who's making incredible contemporary millwork out of fumed oak versus what I'm going to learn from an antiques dealer about oak, but from centuries ago, is going to be totally different. And working with plaster um, geniuses and lighting designers and um, just something as seemingly straightforward as upholstery, those people have a breadth and depth of knowledge that we as designers could never have because we're orchestrators. We're finding all those people, the best violinist, the best percussionist, the best oboist, and putting their efforts together in a way that makes their work shine and that creates something that's a separate piece of music, actually. What advice would you give an emerging professional in the interior design space? Well, I think I wouldn't stop at one thing, but I would say align yourself with the best professionals you can find, whether or not that's a firm or a single mentor, but there is so much to learn and you cannot get it in school. And the ICAA, for example, does incredible, an incredible job at teaching at every level and you still need time on a construction site, on the job site, in the workrooms to understand what people really do. So I would say align yourself with um, people with unbelievable know-how know whose work you admire. 
and then talk to everyone. Everybody loves to talk to you. I mean, you can walk up to the fanciest antiques dealer and they will tell you absolutely everything and talk to you for an hour if they believe that you're genuinely, genuinely interesting and interested. And that is the best, the best source of information, just pooling the resources that you have and paying attention to people and then trying things. Uh, my favorite thing to do is uh, give someone an assignment. Here's, here's a room. Here's the program. Here's what we're trying to do. Here are the furnishings they like. Now produce that six different ways and tell me why each one is strong. Those are the kinds of exercises that you can go through to train your brain and focus on how to effectively get to really meaningful solutions and create something that's memorable and enduring and meaningful. Experience is the best teacher and um, open your mind, listen to others. Good advice, Barbara. Uh, I am a huge admirer of your work, always have been, and of you personally, Barbara. Thank you so much for, for sitting for this interview today on Building Tradition. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.